Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy Podcast number 27. I gave a talk in a room full of friends a little while ago, and uh, it was a few weeks ago, I guess, and this was on the film Last Days in the Desert, which is a film I really enjoyed watching. Um, The sound on this recording isn't perfect, and my presentation is also probably very far from perfect, but I wanted to share it with you anyway, since um, I figured some of you might find the subject matter interesting. So, here you go. I do want to give you a, a taste of, of the theological backdrop drop of the movie, so I'm not going to be giving away too much in the way of spoilers. Okay, so what we have is in the earliest text that describes the temptation, historically speaking, is Mark 1, verse 13 to, to 14. And it's, it's a very... When you read it without knowing, which is what the early Christians would have done, when you, when you read it without knowing that there were going to be later accounts, it's kind of weird. Uh, and it says the Spirit... So Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, who historical scholars um, argue Jesus was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. Uh, although I suppose there's some wiggle room for, for debate there. And uh, this text says, after that, after the baptism... Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So you might just hear that as if it's the first time you've heard this. It's some, some odd stuff is, is going on here. So 40 days in, in the biblical frame is not a set amount of time. Contrary to, to literalist belief, it's a length, or a, it's a long time, which is why we have 40 years in the desert and 40 days and nights of rain uh, regarding the story of Noah. And the film Last Days in the Desert is basically an imagined chapter that happens somewhere in the, in the sort of white space of this text. It's between the words, so it's actually not a biblical movie, which makes it all the more interesting. It's also very interesting because uh, Garcia, the, the director, is not trying to make an overtly uh, spiritual statement or a statement about Christian faith or anything. He, he just wanted to tell a story about a holy man who had some struggles to face and the story that emerged from that. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just about, like, let's make a Christian movie. And that is why it's so good. <laughs> It's not trying to shove the message down your throat. It actually just is a compelling, beautiful, uh, cinematic story. Uh, this interest, uh, there's a lot of interest to, to me in, in this idea that there is such a thing as a biblical movie. A lot of Christians were really upset with the, the story of Noah, the Noah movie that Darren Aronofsky made. I'm not sure if anyone saw, saw that. Um, and they were like, good, it's, it's, not a, you know, it's not based on the Bible. There's all this weird stuff in it. And it's because it's not based on the Bible. It's not based on the biblical text. It's based on the book of Enoch and a few other um, ancient texts. And so it's trying to tell a different story. And I think part of what I want to encourage you to do is not to worry so much about accuracy, but to look at the poetics of it. And I'll get to what I mean uh, uh, about that later. So the film is really a reflection on, on what might have happened in all these between spaces in, in Mark's text. Um, and it's really about the last days in the desert. So Jesus is concluding his time, the, the time of the temptation, and as he's moving towards Jerusalem. 
So the aim of what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide a theopoetic backdrop. If you want to use a beautiful word, theopoetics is the word, your word of the day. Um, it is a, a, a way of doing theology. Now theology is theos and logos, from those Greek words, and the basic idea is there's a kind of logic to talking about God. Actually, logos also refers to words about God. But in a post-enlightenment world, which is where we are, we tend to want to quantify and systematize things in a way that I, I think is sometimes quite unhelpful. So I want to look at, in a way, the poetry of what's going on, uh, which, which maybe will change the, the lens that you look at things through. Uh, if you're, so I know some of you are poets, and I know you know that if you interpret things overly literally, you actually wreck the poem. And so that's what I want to try and do. I'm looking at symbolism, just a little bit of the symbolism, and then I want to answer three key questions, more or less. There are lots of other questions, sub-questions that arise, as you will see. What was the temptation about? Because that's a good question to, to ask before you even watch the film. What's up with Satan? Which is a, you know, the question that you've been asking for the whole week, uh, I'm sure. Um, and then, what does it mean to have a destiny? which no one cares about. Uh, but, you know, if you were to, you know, think about this question, you would, you would ask that. So there are three temptation accounts. Obviously, uh, the Gospel of John uh, being a slightly different, having a slightly different angle doesn't look at it. Um, and they're in, in Mark 1, Matthew 4, Luke 4 as well. And all of those accounts suggest that this is a time of preparation for Jesus. He is about to embark on, on a ministry, a calling, a vocation, and he needs to have some downtime, alone time, which I really appreciate because that's something I, I need a lot of um, just because of who I am. And this is a kind of interlude between what he was doing before, which we, we presume was carpentry, uh, possibly uh, a form of discipleship that he was going through as well, and then what he actually ends up doing. So this is a between phase. It's a, it's a, so the desert becomes a kind of, um, it's a, a place of betweenness. It's not neither here nor there. It's, it, and it's very interesting, even in the, the biblical text, there's this idea of the wilderness. Which wilderness? Which one was it? It doesn't tell you. It's just this kind of, well, there's a wilderness. He just went there. It's, it, it's not absolutely definite. But what people don't often realize is this was kind of the foundation. I mean, we presume because Jesus was alone in the desert, this story tells us that he at, the, at some point was with other people, but we presume that he told this story to his disciples. This is what he was doing. He was like, well, there was this time I was in the wilderness. This is what happened after the baptism. Everyone was there, and then I had to go somewhere. So he would have told the story. Otherwise, we would have no reason to um, understand where we got this from. The dis disciples, we hope, didn't just make it up. But this was a preparation, a foundation for what Jesus was going to be doing. So the temptation accounts are really important for understanding what Jesus' whole ministry is about. So this is what uh, Pope Benedict XVI says. You knew I was going to quote from the Pope. Uh, well, one of them, because... I think that's one of the few times in history we have two. Isn't that lovely? Um, he, uh, so he's got this trilogy uh, on Jesus of Nazareth. It is profound theology if you want to uh, check them out. He says, 
referring to Mark's text, in this short account of the temptations, Mark brings into relief the parallels between Adam and Jesus, stressing how Jesus suffers through the quintessential human drama. Jesus, we read, was in, with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. The desert, which is the opposite image of the Garden of Eden. Quite a beautiful idea, again, the poet, poetics of it. It becomes a place of reconciliation and healing. Wild beasts are the most concrete threat that the rebellion of creation and the power of death posed to man. But here they become man's friends as, as they once were in paradise. Peace is restored, the peace that Isaiah proclaims for the days of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Now, in the last days in the desert, you saw from the clip that, that the wild animals chasing, do you remember that little bit? That doesn't look like peace and harmony. Okay, but um, so this is also, I'd, I'd like to just raise this point. The Pope is, is kind of inserting a few things here. He presumes it's a place of reconciliation. And in, even in the film, the desert does become a place of reconciliation. But it's not in the way that uh, Benedict XVI describes it. So what I want to start with is looking at the desert as a symbol. Ewan McGregor, um, in some of the interviews, he's mentioned the fact that the desert has it, is kind of like one of the characters in the, in the story. Isn't that a fantastic shot? Jesus floating midair, looking out at the... Uh, I won't explain that shot to you. You should just see the film and, and see what it means there. So the desert is a symbol, and I, one of the best ways to, to watch films is to actually look at symbolism, to look at what, when something is there, it's not there accidentally. There was a choice that went into it. What kind of desert are we dealing with? So I think we've all had images of, of what kind of desert or wilderness Jesus was in when he was being tempted, but this presents this kind of endless, endless landscape. It's very rough. It's very rugged. And it becomes obviously a symbol of privation and lack. Water is very hard to come by. There is disharmony, disharmony in nature even. Uh, but the disharmony in nature actually sort of mirrors a bit of disharmony in, in Jesus, as, as this story um, suggests. There are extremes. So a desert is a place of extreme heat. But one of the things that comes out in the, in the film is that it's also a place of extreme cold. And the actors actually said, you don't have to pretend to be cold. in when Because there are some scenes where they're like wrapping, like trying to get warm. And they don't have to pretend because it is genuinely freezing. Uh, it's very inhospitable. It's hostile. And it is a representation, a symbol for the struggle of the human drama. But it is also, and I just love this idea. Bernard McGinn has this idea. He, he's done some research on what deserts symbolize. Often in literature, uh, they symbolize mystical absorption. How is that for a beautiful idea? Anyone want to be absorbed in the mystery? Well, this is what the desert represents. Um, I think we're, we're not generally absorbed in the mystery. We're absorbed in other things. We've got, you know, the things we have to get through in the day. And it does mean that our general state of living is, is one of disconnection. Uh, we're, we're trying to fill spaces up with sound and activity and all sorts of other things. And this film pre presents, by the way, the screenplay for the film is about, a, it's about 60 pages. 
and most film screenplays are much longer. So there's this idea, even implicit in the creation of the film, that there is space. Uh, you have shots of Jesus walking through the desert. And I think for the usual film experience is, wait, wait, there should be an edit here. There should be something added. And this kind of strips things away. And I think that's a really beautiful uh, artistic choice. So Charles de Foucault, um, who's a Trappist monk, says this beautiful thing. He says, to receive the grace of God, you must go to a desert place and stay a while. There you can be emptied and unburdened of everything that does not pertain to God. There is the house of our soul. There the house of our soul is swept clean to make room for God alone to dwell. We need this silence, this absence, so that God can build his hermitage with us. So the film actually becomes a space to enter into and to contemplate what mystery is about, what, what the actual human struggles are. But they're, of course, they're internal struggles. This is a very thing, difficult thing to do formally, to actually try and represent something that's going on internally. And thankfully, there are no voiceovers, uh, because that would have wrecked everything. They tend to wreck everything. If you've seen uh, the, the early version of Blade Runner, not the director's cut, you know what voiceovers do. Um, so, the desert represents a story that moves from lack to abundance. Not, a, not the kind of abundance we would maybe expect. The desert, desert doesn't just burst into life. But there's a kind of inner life that gets um, explored here. But it also represents a movement from disconnection to connection. Again, and I'm not going to give this away, but it, again, it's not in the way you would expect. So the main theme of the film is it hinges around the relationship between a father and a son. And Jesus enters into this story, but this relationship is not great. The father doesn't really have the intellectual capacity or the heart or the emotional intelligence to be able to connect with his son, who is quite a remarkable kid. And his son has a lot of ambitions that his, son, that his father just refuses to recognize. So there's a disconnection here. But Jesus in the film, he's referred to as Yeshua throughout the movie, so I'll probably switch to that. So Yeshua has this, this sense of disconnection from God, which is something that you can think about from a theological perspective. I think uh, even despite the hypostatic union, Theology. It's wonderful. Um, even despite the fact that Jesus is in his very nature God, he would have still had this fully human experience of the ones that we have, you know, of being disconnected from God. And I think that's something that the film tries to at least hint at. Um, so, but along the way, there is this demon. Uh, so the film refers to it as demon, but it's clearly the Satan character, the. Um, Lucifer, I think, was in the screenplay early on. It refers to uh, the characters that. So the demon talking to, sees Yeshua praying, and he says to him, "Talking to your father." By the way, you get firstly, isn't it cool that Yeshua is Scottish? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very interesting filmic choice. Talking to your father is like talking to a rock. The demon says he's so busy with his little things, the shape of a drop of dew, the sound roots make breaking their way through the ground. Everything matters to him more than you. And Yeshua's response is, no, my father loves me. And the demon responds, well, he's amused by you. 
he's in love with himself only. So there is what Jesus, Yeshua, represents. There's what he believes. But there's this force that resists what he is actually, what he stands for. Uh, by the way, isn't that also a great example of beautiful writing? I, I mean, the, in this form, I, I hate to say it, but the devil gets some really good lines. Uh, uh, really, like some of the most poetic stuff actually comes out of the devil, which is uh, interesting. The aim of the plot then is for Jesus or Yeshua to work through his own angst, his own sense of disconnection. And he does this by placing himself within the, a drama of a, a small family, a mother, a father, and their son. And through this engagement with the struggle, Yeshua discovers his destiny. So there's a challenge that is presented to Yeshua. You need this family, this tiny family that you're in, they're having some problems. The mother is, is dying, she's very ill. The father is very stubborn and just tries to make his way. The son has his own. So they're, they're all disconnected. And Yeshua tries to speak into this or be present to it, which is a different thing. He doesn't say a lot. He, he just wants to be present to it to help. And this raises all these questions. So we'll come to it. So who is the demon slash Satan anyway? And I think in the process we'll answer the question of why possibly... Why does he look like Yeshua? Why, why did the director choose to make the Satan the mirror image of Yeshua? And then what is the temptation about? And then what does it mean to have a destiny? So I mentioned this idea that I'm going to be looking at the theopoetics of this. I, I've been reading, well, a lot, as is typical of me. And one of the ideas that I came across is this idea of reading scripture as something that is evocative and not just as informative. We live in the Google age, which means that we think everything should be about information. The Bible comes from a very different sort of a world. It comes out of a world of a wisdom tradition, which poses questions, which, which uses poetry, which doesn't put, pin things down in absolutely concrete uh, terms. And this is the way that it may be helpful to look at the question of who the demon is. So one of the reasons to uh, look at the theopoetics of it is, of course, provided by Chesterton. Thank you, Chesterton. He says, poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so to make it finite. The result is mental exhaustion. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. So the idea of being absorbed by the mystery is that you can actually see everything much more clearly. That's what Chesterton argues. As soon as you accept mystery, the whole world becomes clear. As soon as you want to understand every single thing, everything becomes fuzzy. Um, there, and ambiguities arise everywhere and just, you know, kick you in the head. To, to answer a little bit about why it's important to look at the question of who the demon was, I'm, I'm referring to 1 John 3 verse 8, which says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm sure all of you had a, like a different image. If I'd asked the question, why did the Son of God appear, if that had been the question, you would have had a series of answers. But what is very interesting is, in the New Testament, it's to destroy the devil's work. Which raises all sorts of questions for people like me who don't think the devil is a literal being. Right? 
because I'm, I'm looking at this and going, come on, do we have to be this naive? But it's clearly very important, and so we need to find a way to answer what this demon is about. So uh, this is echoed also in N.T. Wright, by the way, an incredible theologian. Um, I'm reading his book, The Day the Revolution Began, right now. But he's pretty much read everything he did, but, but read the books that are under, let's say, 300 pages. Because um, he's got books that are like The Resurrection of the Son of God is, is close to 800 pages. He didn't worry about editing, you know, shrinking it down. Um, but in Simply Jesus, he wrote this. He says, wherever we look, it appears that Jesus was aware of a great battle in which he was already involved before too long, uh, and that this battle would before too long reach some kind of a climax. The battle in question was a different sort of thing from perhaps the sort of thing we'd expect um, because he had a different sort of enemy. The battle Jesus was fighting was against the Satan. So again, this Satan, the devil, this, this character is clearly quite important from a biblical perspective. Uh, Tradition. So what is very interesting is that when you look at the Bible, you find multiple images of the Satan. So many different ways of understanding this, this presence or being or thing. Uh, and Rene Girard uh, points out this thing in his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, which is a great title for a book. He says, Satan has no real being. He exists always as a parasite on the being of mankind or humankind. Just as theology tells us that he exists as a parasite on the being of God. We often have in our sort of uh, modern consciousness this idea that good and evil are equal and opposite and mirror images of each other in a way. Like forces that antagonize each other. So Satan must be a being like God. But what Gerard is pointing out is that it makes much more sense to see Satan as non-being. As, as a vacuum, like evil, evil is not ever a thing, or the, although it is felt as a thing, it is privation, it is a, it is a lack of goodness. There's a lot of theology uh, that explains that. Uh, Aquinas is quite good on that in particular. Richard Beck uh, it says this, by the way, I'm, I'm referring to Richard Beck, who Johannes introduced me to um, many, many years ago, and that's kind of cool uh, that he's here to... to hear me refer to sources that he inspired me to read. So Richard Beck, in, in a great book called Reviving Old, Scr Old Scratch, says basically a Satan is more of a relationship than a person. Anything that is facing you in an antagonistic or adversarial way, working against you as an opponent or enemy, is standing before you as a Satan, an advers ad adversary. In the Bible, Satan and the devil are interchangeable names for the personification of all that is adversarial to the kingdom of God. So you could say, hate is the Satan of love, for instance. And you would be accurate. That would be, so love represents who God is. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Hate would be the Satan of that. So that's what the language um, in the Bible is actually getting at. I would say this, so I'm going to start, at, like first attack conservatives and then liberals just for fun, because I can. Um, it's a problem just to see Satan as a literal being, okay? Because this results often in a kind of a, a forgetting of the socio-political dimension of the Satan. So when Jesus is talking about Satan or confronting Satan, he is confronting 
powers and principalities, huge structural problems, not just people who are demon-possessed. There is that dimension to it too, but just looking at the one, which is what conservatives often do, is to miss, I think, the point. And it also then sees exorcism, exorcism in personal terms. It also makes exorcism out to be very weird. I have actually seen videos of exorcisms. <laughs> They're basically hilarious. Um, because what should be scary just seems like the person in the picture just needs a bit of a catharsis of some kind. Okay, that's my skeptical position on it. But also, what I'm going to say, which I know grates a lot of people, but it's, I want to point out that most of the conceptions people have of the Satan character stem from Gnosticism and from Deism, not from the Judeo-Christian tradition. So what, is very, what happens is, in Gnosticism, there is, the, there is the divine, there is the real God, and then there is the Demiurge, or also named, known as Yeldabaoth which is the name you wouldn't want to give to your kid. Um, and they are both, so the divine creates the spirit, and Yaldabaoth creates the flesh, spirit, flesh. And that creates a, a very weird reading of the Apostle Paul's writings. Seeing these things as these oppositional, equal opposite forces in a way, is to create all kinds of dualisms that do not exist in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So that's the trouble with the conservative position. Now the liberal position. Um, the trouble with seeing the Satan as merely symbolic, uh, that is, as, an, as a kind of personification of socio-political evil, is not good enough either, because it fails to see that the spirit of systems actually dwells within everyone. Um, it also creates this opportunity for demonizing the other. That happens in conservatives too. So creating a, an other to demonize. The point of the Satan from a biblical perspective is to avoid demonizing the other. It actually creates a force or a presence that we need to be always at war with. And we see this even in our language. We talk about political forces or economic forces. We talk about peer pressure or mob rule or Something like the media. This is such a fascinating term. There is no such thing as the media, at least ontologically. The media has no being, right? It's not. It's non-being. There are journalists, but then somehow this thing emerges from journalism that is called the media. And it creates this overwhelmingly negative view of the world. That is the Satan, <laughs> to use kind of contemporary terms. We also speak of a zeitgeist, the word meaning the spirit of the age, right? So it's, it's something that is present, it's a presence, a force, a, a kind of pressure that people feel, which means that basically the whole is always more than the sum of its parts. There's this thing that works, which is not necessarily a person, but we feel that it is true and real. So one of the so what I'm going to do is is say let's not worry so much about the whether Satan is literal or or not. I think in both cases we miss something, which is why I come back to the idea of theopoetics. Let's look at what it does. Let's look at what this language actually produces, how it helps us, and then go for that from there. So one of the images of Satan is that Satan is a social process. People gather, 
they get angry together and a mob arises and then things get burned and we or that's the one thing so we'll, let's call that the fallist movement hypothetically but then there's another kind of Satan which is big systems that perpetuate injustice it's a process what that process always involves is that something evil casts out something that is evil there's a Satan casting out a Satan so this is from René Girard's thinking so universities somehow have found a way in this country to exclude. But then in the fallist movement, there is a similar reaction. And it's a mirror image of this big, let's say, a corrupt system, if we want to address it as that. So you've got two things, but they are both in some ways, not in total ways, but in some ways, they're both in, like basically satanic. But the Satan, <coughs> the Satan is also embodied in people. <coughs> so we see uh, Jesus referring to Peter as Satan when Peter tries to present an alternative to this thing called dying, going to the cross and dying. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Not get behind me, Peter, which is, I mean, and he didn't then, Jesus didn't go, oh, whoa, hang on, hang on, you're Satan, let me have an exorcism now. Because he could have, but he didn't. So there's something else going on. Satan represents opposition to the kingdom of God. Satan is also a spirit or a power in people, also uh, suggested by this episode. So we, uh, the Bible talks about in, in Luke 22, we've got Satan entered Judas. Uh, Satan is referred to as a power in Acts 26. Um, and this is actually a refrain in Paul. He talks about principalities and powers and rulers and authorities. And he, when he does this, he talks about, there's a sense in which he's talking about the spiritual realm, the zeitgeist, but there's also a sense in which he's talking about actual political systems. Both. So there's no dualism in Paul. He doesn't see, oh, whoa, hang on, there's the spiritual realm and there's this physical realm and they're somehow separate. That's Gnosticism, not Christianity. He sees them as intertwined and affecting each other. Satan is also, very controversially, also in Paul, a tool for salvation. So one of the things Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians is he talks about um, these people that were misbehaving and what he did is he handed them over to Satan so that their flesh would be destroyed. Their, in other words, the bit that is not trying to live, in, uh, live as God's image. So that that would be destroyed so that they would be saved. By the way, I mean, the most controversial thing I could say is nowhere close to what Paul says. He's really, he says these really wacky things. Um, but then uh, a, little, a little appreciated dimension of the Satan is that he's boring and bored. And this is actually in the film Last Days in the Desert. You've got this demon sees a shooting star fall and he seems to enjoy it. And Yeshua addresses him and says, you enjoy that? And he said, no, it was a bore. Everything your father does is boring. It's so monotonous. There's no, it just repeats itself endlessly. What? So he, he is just bored and kind of boring and kind of predictable as well. So there's this, just this, whereas, the, yeah, so I think that's a, a very interesting idea because this is what Hannah Arendt discovered when she saw Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, she went to his trial, World War II history, remember that thing? Um, and Eichmann was this terrible human being. And when Hannah Arendt was going to this trial, she was a Jewish woman. 
She wanted to see what evil looks like. And she had all of these images of evil is going to be this monster. Eichmann is going to be this, you know, spitting fire and doing, you know, like crazy stuff. And she saw him and she's like, he's kind of pathetic. But this really pathetic man did incredibly evil things by being a bureaucrat. So Arndt discovered that evil is banal. That's the, the phrase, uh, the banality of evil. Evil is banal, ordinary, bland, trivial, intellectually shallow, superficial, and uninteresting. And I think this fits because the devil is even in the biblical tradition, an impersonal force, not a personal force, this is why he's not a person but more a relationship, it's an impersonal force that refuses to see individual people as having any significance. And this is the thing that, that happens even in, in the film. The demon seems to treat the people in the family like cogs in a machine. Um, he sees creation as just mechanical. Everything is just boring and mechanical. But Yeshua inserts and reminds the Satan, in a way, of the personality of things. That these people matter, that there is a, a meaning behind even, uh, even things that look like monotonous processes. So, in a weird sort of way, if we see that the Satan is a system, for instance, you can start to see that the Satan might be something like boring like forwarding emails or just clicking like on Facebook or just moving paperwork um, around the Satan is a bureaucrat ticking boxes also it means that the Satan is not that interesting by the way they, I know there are Satanists and I know they do terrible things apparently there's some speculation about whether they actually do these things or just talk about it um, but Weirdly enough, that is a kind of emergent uh, idea that has come out of, I think, probably reading too much Dante, although there's no, really no such thing. Uh, there is this idea of the Satan is always like all these overtly evil things. That is missing the point. Yes, there is definitely overtly evil stuff that happens. But sometimes evil happens at a very small, boring, personal level. And uh, I'm going to address what, how this relates to defining a destiny soon. So I think it's very helpful from a, from a theological and theopoetic perspective to actually personify the, um, Satan as Yeshua's double, as, as a mirror image. Because it, it pre presents the idea that there is an obvious rivalry. So it makes, makes for good, uh, a clearer sense of this rivalry. There's also a reminder that discerning the fake from the real and the, the good from the evil is not easy always and also I think it, it, it mimics this idea that Satan is a parasite he doesn't have any inherent being so has to mimic the being of someone else so uh, why personify Satan? because it makes for better storytelling it's easier to hit a target that you can see Imagine, imagination, actually, to engage with anything requires a solid image. Good storytelling always has the sense of finitude to imagination, which is a very underappreciated dimension. One of the reasons Tim Burton's films often talk is because the imagination doesn't really make logical sense. Uh, I'm referring specifically to Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which I saw recently, uh, which 
is it wrecks the book. And I usually go like, oh, film is a different thing. But Tim Burton makes this infinite world. And, and evil is infinite, can do whatever it wants. And, and one character can morph into several others or change his hand into a knife. And you go, what? But this doesn't make any sense. And this is something that, that helps. It helps to have a personification, a clear image of what is evil so that we can actually uh, work against it. And also, personifying the Satan helps to resist scapegoating the other. So Jesus doesn't attack Peter and go, you are the problem. He says, get behind me, Satan, because the Satan in you is the problem. <coughs> and that's a very different <coughs> There's a sense in which we can actually get rid of the Satan in us or in systems and, and not demonize other people in the process or scapegoat other people. Then the question, what is the temptation about? Which I think raises other questions. How is the dialogue significant? What does it mean and what is at stake? Uh, Pope Benedict again, he says, The theological debate between Jesus and the devil is a dispute over the correct interpretation of Scripture and is relevant in every period in history. The hermeneutical question lying at the basis of proper scriptural exegesis is this. What picture of God are we working with? The dispute about interpretation is ultimately a dispute about who God is. Yet in practice, the struggle over the image of God, which underlies the debate about valid interpretation, is decided by the picture we form of Christ. Is he who remained without worldly power really the son of the living God? So he gets to this idea of we're looking at, like, what is, what is the Bible really about? What is God really like? And then... Benedict tacks on this other question. But this is actually about power and how power is handled. So Robert Capon, who's just a marvelous theologian, if you want to read theology that actually makes you laugh occasionally, you should read him. He says, The difference between Jesus and the devil is in their philosophies of power. The temptation in the wilderness is a conversation between two people who cannot hear each other, a masterpiece of non-communication. If you really are God, the devil says... Do something. Jesus' answer is, I really am God, so I do nothing. The devil wants power to be used for good. Jesus insists that power corrupts and defeats the very good it tries to achieve. Power itself is the problem. And that's something that's very evident throughout the New Testament. Jesus' preferences, lastness, leastness, littleness, lostness, and death over all the things that look like achievement and power. Which raises the question of what it means to have a destiny. Because I think often our question of our own destiny is linked to questions of power that have to do with social, social structures. And they forget that this is not the image of non-power that the kingdom of God is supposed to uh, represent. So this is not really, I think, a macro issue. It's not about what will my career be? What, where will I be in 10 years? In, in the last days, in last days in the desert, Jesus doesn't try to do anything great or overly great. Um, he doesn't try to become president, and, that, and that's actually even evident in the in the gospel narratives. It's not this power grabbing thing. There's a power grabbing, by the way, in, in Greek is the word halpagmon, which is quite. Um, it's the the word used in Philippians two when when it describes Jesus uh, did not see equality with God as something to be harpagmoned. Um, so destiny is not about the future, it's about the
the it's, it's not about how ego and power can be built up. It's about de-egotizing things. And in last days in the desert, this comes out in the fact that there are no miracles. Um, and there's no trying to impress. There's just listening and being present and encouraging. So the last thing I want to share with you, uh, which mirrors this, is the story of Therese Lesseau. She has this spiritual practice called, uh, called the Little Way, and it is remarkable. So I just want to briefly draw your attention to it, because I, I think it mirrors something of the non-power that Jesus is trying to get at in his responses to the Satan in the temptation episode. She was this, uh, Teresa so was this very shy and unassuming woman. Uh, she did nothing to draw attention to herself and then died at the age of 24. And no one thought she was significant. Her sisters at her funeral actually thought, like, will anyone have anything to say? She was so quiet and so, like, non-forceful that, that they thought, oh, this is, it's just, it's sad that her life ended so young and... And she really didn't do anything. But then, just, just um, a short while later, Pope Pius XI, um, is that? I, I'm not sure if that's right, um, but I think it's right. Pope Pius presided over his, her sainthood. And in 1997, Pope John Paul II named her Doctor of the Church. Now, in the Catholic Church, that's a big deal. Therese Lasso is a theologian among theologians. She's a saint uh, ahead of other saints. When did she do? Um, she, uh, she died in uh, 18... I think I can... Uh, it's 1897, somewhere around there. Uh, so she, she, was, she is one of very few... The Catholic Church has a bit of a, a history of, of preferencing men, just like the whole of Western history. Uh, but she's one of, I think, four women have, who have become doctors of the church. There are lots of saints, but she's, she's like Thomas Aquinas, but for normal people. Um, for people that actually don't want to get lost in thought. By the way, Thomas Aquinas, even at the end of his life, he had this mystical absorption experience where he went, oh, my words are straw. So the greatest theologian in, in probably the history of the church at the end of his life, kind of went, oh, I'm stopping writing, this is just nonsense. You should actually have an experience of God, and then you will realize how, how much rubbish we write. Um, so what made the difference is, uh, she wrote this diary of her, of her life, of her experience, called The Story of a Soul, uh, which was uh, yeah, written in 1898, well, published in 1898, after her death. During her lifetime, this is Richard Beck again in a different book, which probably uh, my favorite book of the year, uh, The Slavery of Death. If you want to read something that will knock your socks off, you should read this. Um, he said, during her lifetime, few around Therese sensed that a spiritual hurricane raged inside her. Something that I think all of us wouldn't mind being said about us. That her quiet and humble exterior hid one of the great spiritual teachers of the modern age. Her teaching was more or less this, and this is why it's called the little way of St. Therese Lasso. Forget heroics. She wanted to be a, like a heroic figure like, like uh, Joan of Arc, you know, do something great, big, big flashy stuff. But she wasn't a flashy person. It didn't fit, and she suddenly realized, well, actually, 
the spiritual life, the Christian life, is not in bigness and power grabbing. It's in smallness. It's not about headline grabbing or exorcisms or devil punching, or at least showy exorcisms. It's established in small acts of non-power and self-giving. So this is what Richard Beck says. He says, what she found was not a heroic path, but a little way. A way that constituted of making small, seemingly insignificant sacrifices in loving others. The little way involves small acts of daily relinquishment, acts of humility, restraint, self-control, forbearance, perseverance, patience, and long-suffering. The little way is about bearing with people, which is something we have to do rather awkwardly. Uh, The dying to self here is less about heroic martyrdom than it is about holding your tongue refusing to gossip, waiting patiently, mastering your irritation, avoiding the spotlight, refusing to respond to insults, allowing others to cut in line, being first to apologize, and not seeking to win every argument. And that is such an interesting comment, I think, on, and such a profound comment on the way that we tend to want to view, you know, the Christian life. There are missionaries doing amazing things. Whoa. But what about the, what about that colleague at work that you don't like or that no one really wants to spend time with? Are you going to just talk to them and be nice? No, like, so, so that, to use spiritual warfare language, is exorcism. Because you are opposing the Satan. I think this is amazing because these these little things, by the way, like I don't know when I first read that, I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> there are some things I can adjust in my life." It's little stuff. It's not very flashy, but I think it has a weight that we might forget because it is non-power. So, last days in the desert does this in a way. It ref- it kind of presents us with the a, the little way of Jesus. There's not. No heroics, no flashy displays, no miracles, but a small series of choices not to buy into the madness of the Satan, which brings me to my basic summary, which is that this story is about a man in a desert facing the essence of the human drama and finding that God is not beyond the ordinary, but in it. Thanks very much.